God showed the love when I went bad sin. God showed the die for me. Boom, five, eight. God showed the love when I went bad sin. God showed the die for me. Boom, five, eight. God showed the love chosen love God chosen love chosen love God chosen love Boom, five. God chose a love when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a love when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a love chose a love God chose a love chose a love God chose a love Boom, five, eight. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Whoever is here, let me know if the audio is okay. I got some new equipment, got a new camera, so I'm I'm hoping it works. I really am. If it doesn't, let me know. If the audio is not coming through clean or if it's too quiet, let me know. I'm not, I won't be offended. I want to fix it so that people can enjoy and listen. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, Lawrence. Looks like we got a smaller crew this morning. All right. Um, <clears throat> man, I'm excited for today. I want to make sure I give people time to jump in and then we'll talk about the scriptures and where we're going. If you didn't already know, we're doing a series on prophecy. And so this is episode number five. Um, episode one, we talked about defining the definition of prophecy. Um, <laughs> Greg Grogu. Oh, get that guy off my stream. Good morning, John. So episode one, we talked about the definition of prophecy, the logistics of the delivery. We talked about um, the New Testament and how I don't believe that because the New Testament is completed, that that means somehow uh, God doesn't speak in the same capacity he used to uh, at all. You know, he just changed methods entirely. Um, I don't believe that, it, you know, the completion of the New Testament necessitates no more prophecy, no more prophets. Um, episode three, we talked about Old Testament prophecies or, or dreams. Um, teaching, or no, episode three was about um, training prophecy, sorry, and what that looks like, developing the gift. Uh, episode four, we talked about dreams, okay? And then today, I mean, look at all you guys giving some really cool feedback. Thank you. Um, and then today we're talking about visions. And so I want to make a few things clear as everyone's coming in. Um, I'm not saying we should rely on visions as the primary means through which God communicates. I'm not saying we should be hungry for visions as if to be the, the main method through which God will interact with us and, and will experience God. I'm saying these, these different ways that God communicates, uh, He's over it. He's sovereign. He decides how He's going to interact with us. He knows the best way to get our attention. He knows the best way to get things done in our life. He knows the best way to communicate a point to us in a way that really drives it home in our heart, whether that be through visions, whether that be through dreams, whether that be through scripture, preachers, my quiet time, okay? And so I, I've already established, I, I'm assuming that you've already watched the first four episodes, okay? 
I'm not going to explain all my reasoning behind why I believe prophecy is for today and why I believe prophets are still some, you know, instituted in, in, in the church or active, you might say. I've already explained that. And so if you disagree with my premise, you are, you're more than welcome to go and watch the past episodes. Okay, but I'm assuming that you have already watched these and you agree with the premise or at least are trying to come to a conclusion on your own and trying to figure out if this is right. And we're talking about visions today, okay? So um, if you go to Numbers chapter 12, this is where I usually take you when I talk about dreams, prophecy, visions. Um, I believe that the prophetic, okay, that, that mode of God communicating to people, I will say this too, okay? Um, whether the Old or New Testament, this is not based on whether the Spirit of God has come or not, whether the Old or New Testament. Visions, dreams, uh, prophetic words and utterances, are not limited to prophets and those who are gifted prophetically. So if I have the gift of prophecy, that's great. That means these things uh, will increase in frequency and it'll become more natural or I have a higher discernment or God has decided to speak more in that capacity to me if I'm gifted or I have that role in the body. If I don't have the gift and I don't have that role in the body, that does not mean that God will not speak to you ever in dreams or visions or prophetic utterances or even through other prophets, okay? so. Um, Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, we see the three kind of trifecta um, dimension to prophecy. Uh, God says to Miriam and Aaron, and I'm going to reference this quite a bit. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about, or the next day, Wednesday, we're going to talk about false prophets. Okay, so if you're really, <clears throat> I know a lot of people have been warning me, cautioning me, you need to talk about false prophets. You need to talk about false prophecies, false dreams. I will. That's tomorrow. That's Wednesday. For now, Numbers chapter 12, verse 6 uh, God tells Miriam and Aram, look, if there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. And then he goes on and he warns Miriam and Aaron, why were you not, you know, afraid to speak against my servant? Okay, so there's dreams, there's visions, there's the kind of mouth to mouth prophetic utterance that is very clear and not in riddles. And that's uh, what Joel chapter 2 touches on. That's what Acts chapter 2 touches on. That's what Job 33, 14 touches on. I don't need to lay the foundation again. We've already laid it, okay? So I'm not going to go back and revisit these points. I'm assuming you understand how I <clears throat> understand the biblical presentation of prophecy. There's this trifecta category. There's visions, dreams, and prophetic utterances. This kind of clear, not in riddles, not in metaphors, not in symbols. Um, word that comes from the Spirit or straight from God, you know. Uh, whether it's Moses or Samuel or you know, Elijah, okay, so, um, and again, I don't believe, I don't believe that this means, um, well, I'm not gifted, or I don't have that role in the body, therefore God will never, uh, Scripture doesn't speak to that, Scripture doesn't say if you don't have this gift, actually, a lot of visions, a lot of dreams come to non-prophets, people who aren't gifted prophetically, you're gonna see, like, I don't know, we'll, we'll get to it, okay, but Right now, what we're going to do is we're going to jump in the Old Testament. We're going to do a survey of visions. We've already talked about dreams. We've talked about prophetic words. Now we're going to survey the Old Testament and then the New for visions. And hopefully, like, this is not going to be an instructive rubric where it's like, let me give you a master class on visions and the how-to. You know, this isn't uh, visions for dummies. Okay, so I know everyone wants instruction. Everyone wants, like, the step-by-step -step guide to how do I receive visions? How do I walk in visions? Again, we're not pursuing visions, you know, as ultimate. But if they happen, I think you should be ready for how to handle or how to interpret, how to discern whether in fact what you're receiving is a vision from God 
I think being prepared and being theologically sound and grounded in the truth is, is far more valuable than chasing visions as, as if to be the only way God speaks. Uh, remember, these things are, are secondary. Um, and, and they vary in degrees throughout human history. And so we, I don't know, we, we just want these black and white categories where it's like, just tell me if prophecy is going to do this and this and this. And th there's just a multiplicity of ways that God even uh, will relay a prophetic word in dreams or visions. There's almost subcategories within that. And we've talked about that, okay? But in the Old Testament, there are these people called seers, okay? And when you read the Old Testament, a seer is another name for a prophet. So they will be used interchangeably, but specifically, seers will specialize in visions, images, pictures, um, people like uh, Balaam, people like Ido, people like Jeremiah, people like Samuel. And in the New Testament, you know, you'll have visions. Paul gets visions. Stephen gets a vision of seeing Jesus, you know, standing at the right hand of the Father. John gets visions. Ananias gets visions. Cornelius gets visions. So seers and prophets um, are somewhat distinguished but seers fall under the, the, the category of prof prophetic. Okay, so in other words, seers are having a visual experience of a prophetic word, as opposed to, I don't know, um, visions in the night where you're dreaming and you're unconscious in that, in that sense, um, and God's speaking to you in that way. Visions are more happening in, um, I, I wouldn't say daytime, but visions are gonna be visual experiences of the word of the Lord, okay? Um, I will say this in the Old Testament, seers aren't the only ones who can receive visions from God, um, but they specialize in that. And because I, I think when people hear about prophecy, they think they, they have this plastic view where it's like, well, God, when I hear prophet, prophetic, I think of God speaking like this. Whereas it seems to be this trifecta category of, um, or this trifecta uh, idea of visions, dreams, and prophetic utterances. Amos chapter 7, verse 12 um, will show us, okay, that a seer is a prophet. Now, I've never done a study on seers. I didn't, I didn't care to. Um, but when you actually study it out all the way, there is a, there's a difference between your typical everyday Moses, Samuel, Elijah prophet and a seer, uh, like Balaam. Samuel is actually going to be referred to as a seer in first Samuel. Um, so he, he specializes in, in that visions too, in those visions too. But when we get to Samuel's first encounter with God, the word of the Lord actually comes in a visual capacity. In other words, Samuel experiences the word of the Lord in a, in a visual way. Um, and so Amos chapter 7 verse 12, Amaziah says to Amos, O seer, and Amos is a prophet of the Lord, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, eat bread there and prophesy there, but don't prophesy at Bethel. It is the king's sanctuary. It's a temple of the kingdom. Amos is bringing a, a prophetic word against what, what's happening in Israel. And Amaziah comes against him and says, stop. Okay, stop. Um, so Amos here is referred to as a seer. First Samuel chapter 9, uh, Samuel is also referred to as a seer. And we'll get commentary on this. Okay, so Saul leaves his family. He's looking for, I think, sheep, uh, donkeys. He's looking for donkeys. He's on a mission sent by his dad. And... Uh, they come up short, okay? <clears throat> and the servant that's with Saul, he goes, hey, look, um, back it up. There's a man of God in this city because they're about to give up. And he goes, actually, there's a man of God in this city. He's a man who's held in honor. All he says comes true. Um, so now let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring him, right? 
And then the servant goes, well, I got um, a quarter of a shekel of silver. I'll give it to the man of God. Samuel's called a man of God uh, to tell us our way. Now watch this. Uh, Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer. So this is a normal thing. If you were someone who was seeking the word of the Lord, inquiring of God, direction, um, clarification, um, I don't know, whatever it may be, to inquire of God was to go and see the seer. Um, For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And so uh, Saul says to a servant, well, okay, let's go. Let's go find the man of God. Um, They go up to the hill of the city. Uh, They meet some young women coming down and they go, is the seer here? Now remember, seer is interchangeable with prophet. It's formerly. Formerly, Samuel was referred to not just as a prophet, but a seer. Someone who specializes in the visual experiences of the word of the Lord. Not every prophet did. did. Um, So they answered, he is. He's just ahead of you. Hurry. Uh, He's come now to the city because the people have a sacrifice. Um, You skip down. They go into the city. The day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You'll anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Okay? I've seen my people. Their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw saw Saul, the Lord told him, that's the man I told you about. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered, I am the seer. Okay, so then he'll he'll go on to explain to Saul what God's really going to do with Saul and how he's going to encounter God in the future and how he's going to be raised up to be king. He's going to explain all that to Saul. But I want you to see that in the Old Testament, to be a seer uh, interchangeably, at least in Samuel's time, is to be a prophet. Prophets and seers go hand in hand. But again, seers are those who will specialize. And I'll show you why. Okay, I'm not building something out of nothing, I don't believe. But I've at least established that, yes, seers are are, um, at least prophets, prophetic. Okay, they operate in that same capacity. Uh, Samuel is called a seer. They would go up to, you know, inquire of the seer, okay? But at the same time, prophets, your typical, I hear the voice of the Lord and and the word of the Lord comes to me, that typical kind of prophet, though Samuel functions like that, and though he does also function as a seer, that typical kind of prophet is also distinguished from a seer. So 2 Chronicles 12, 15, which, which becomes confusing. It really does. 2 Chronicles 12, 15 says the acts of Rehoboam, the king, from first to last, <clears throat> are they not written in the chronicles of Shemaiah, the prophet, okay, and Ido, the seer? Now remember, a seer is someone who does uh, experience the word of the Lord, but again, in a visual capacity, in pictures, and images. Um, there were continual wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So there's that, there's that subtle Distinction, Shemaiah the prophet. Why not say Shemaiah and Ido the prophets? Well, maybe, and again, this is just speculation, maybe Shemaiah uh, d- doesn't experience the visions of the Lord like Ido does. Or maybe Ido, uh, again, is that's more of his focus when it comes to hearing the word of the Lord. It's a visual experience. 2 Kings 7, thir- 17, 13, uh, the, Lord, the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and by every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. So both prophet and seer were sent to Israel by God to warn them, turn from sin, turn to the law, turn to God, you know, repent, turn from your way of living. And even the seers played a role in that um, declaring judgment or repentance, you know, turn, turn. And so whatever vision a seer would experience seemed to play a role 
Um, depending on the seer that is sent to Israel, that, that played a role in, um, you know, warning Israel, okay? I, I really need to build somewhat of a case for this because a lot of people um, will think I'm crazy. But as I surveyed the Old Testament, I'm just trying to be honest with the scriptures. That's all. We're just trying to build biblical categories. And if, they, if those continue into the New Testament, then we want to continue, uh, you know, thinking with those same categories, okay? I'm just trying to give you categories uh, for visions. Second Chronicles 29, 25. Um, this is King Hezekiah. And he's, let's just say he's doing the right thing. He's bringing sacrifices before the Lord. He's actually an honorable king. He stations the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres, according to the commandment of David and Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet. Prophet. So we have Nathan who functions as a prophet. Remember, he hears from the Lord and he tells David, hey, I heard you actually uh, kind of killed your eye and slept with Bathsheba. Let me tell you in a story and then I'll expose you. Uh, Nathan also tells David, hey, uh, I know you want to build the house of the Lord, but that's not for you. So Nathan operates in that you know, capacity. David as the king also had Gad a seer. Okay, so um, he has like these, these two people, at least, I'm not saying only, but at least, he has these two prophetic voices around him to direct and guide his decisions as the king. And Gad is his seer. Nathan's his prophet. There's a distinction. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. Through his prophets. This is referring to the fact that Levites are stationed in the house of the Lord with these different in instruments that David commanded, but he received that command from the Lord through the seer, Gad, and through the prophet Nathan. Okay, so it came from God, came to David, and David institutes that. That's what Hezekiah is following now when he's reigning, okay? Um, you don't hear a lot about seers. And if you do, a lot of people will just build something around one single verse. And when there's one occurrence of something, it's not usually a prescriptive verse. Meaning, if you see one thing happen exclusively one time, it's very never happened other than that, I don't draw an application and go, oh, that is how I should expect to function. No, you should actually read the scriptures and survey if that ever happens again. Because if it's that rare that it only has one occurrence, that doesn't mean it will never happen again, but I shouldn't expect it to be normative. Okay, so we're not trying to build something normative out of a rare occurrence in the Old Testament. Seers were a normal thing, especially for the kings. In fact, kings had seers to consult God. That's what we see with David, okay? You'll also see that seers were actually connected to the instruments, the worship, the praise. I'll show you in a minute. Um, 2 Samuel 24, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer. And here's what Gad is sent to say to David. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, okay? Because David did a no-no. David essentially was trying to see how good and strong his army was and find a sense of security and confidence in those numbers. Uh, to number them as if they were his, to number them as if that was his hope and confidence, to number them as if to find pride in numbers. And David makes a boo-boo and Gad is sent as David's seer and he says, this is what the Lord says, three things I offer you. You get to choose what the consequence is for your sin. So Gad tells David the three different consequences, three years of famine, or you'll flee three months before your foes, or three days of pestilence in the land. You get to choose. Okay, so David has a seer named Gad, but he also has a prophet. 
<clears throat> and I don't believe these are the only prophetic voices around him. Of course, David's going to be discerning and selective, but we at least see Nathan and Gad. Okay. Now, in 2 Chronicles 16, Hanani, Panini, <laughs> Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah. And he said to him, so Asa's king of Judah, Hanani the seer, comes, because you relied on the king of Syria and didn't rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Assyria has escaped you. Um, at verse 10, I'm going to skip down because there's a lot of scripture to go through. A lot of these details aren't really relevant to what I'm trying to get you to understand, okay? Um, I don't want you to get lost in the weeds. Asa was angry with the seer, put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. Okay, so Asa doesn't seem to be a good king that heeds the voice of God, but seers were in place, right, as uh, voices of direction and reason and counselors to the kings. Um, Second Chronicles 19.2, Jehu, the son of Hanini, which, again, he's referred to as the seer, <clears throat> Jehu, the son of Hanini, went out to meet uh, him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because Jehoshaphat is, um, I believe, going to help King Ahab, if I'm not mistaken. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety. Yes. So another word of judgment against another king coming from a seer. Seers seem to be the voice of reason and the voice of um, God's judgment against, you know, king's wicked decisions. Okay, whether it's uh, King Asa, whether it's uh, uh, King Jehoshaphat, okay? Uh, so Jehu, the son of Hanini the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, and maybe Jehu is also uh, a seer as the son of Hanini who is a seer, um, but this seems to be a, a word from God, just like we saw in 2 Samuel 24. David gets, a, you know, consequences and the seer comes and sends, you know, declares those. That doesn't mean a seer only. And, and again, <clears throat> the purpose behind trying to figure out what a seer is and how they functioned and how God ordained them and what, you know, the purpose was is because then that will help us build a helpful framework around visions because seers seem to specialize in that, Okay. Um, seers are actually related to worship. In 2 Chronicles 29.30, okay, and, and I don't know what to do with this, just giving you the data, and this can be boring for some people, I get it, but if I'm going to confidently move forward in something, I want to understand as much as I can about that. I don't want to be left in the dark and operate in prophecy. I don't want to be ignorant. I want to have the, the clearest view of all that scripture says about it. Seers are a part of the equation, and seers are related to worship, okay? I think that is possibly why people draw uh, from worship a, a prophetic sense. In other words, they, they assign worship and praise a prophetic element. Because, of course, you're declaring the word of the Lord, absolutely. But is there potentially something else that is taking place on a deeper level? Second Chronicles 29.30, and I don't have the answer to that. I'm just posing a question. 2 Chronicles 29.30, Hezekiah the king, the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. Okay, so Hezekiah tells Levites, hey, this is what we're going to sing. The Psalms, the songs of David, the prayer journals of, of, you know, David and the other psalmists. And Asaph is a part of those writings. Asaph actually, <clears throat> you'll see a lot of Psalms of Asaph, who is a seer. Um, and they sang praises with gladness and they bowed and worshipped. Okay, so Asaph, who is um, a part of these, these lyrics, these songs that the Levites are called to sing, he's a seer. It's very important because he's given some airtime in the Psalms. 
he gets some room to write. Um, Nehemiah 12.46 says, Long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers. And so Asaph is in the time of David. There were directors of the singers. There were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So I'm just trying to show you that, that Asaph uh, was a part of and connected to the, if there's a hierarchy in the singers and the Levites and the praise, the Silver Mouse would know better than I do, but Asaph was a part of that. Um, the songs of praise, the directors, the choir master, okay? <clears throat> He's connected to the praise and worship of the people, at least writing the songs they will sing. Second uh, Chronicles 35, 15. The singers, the sons of Asaph, so now we have the children of Asaph, were in their place according to the command of David. So David, another word, received uh, a word from the Lord. I think this was through, um, we read about this earlier, I don't remember. Um, and Asaph, and Heman, and Jeduthun, the king's, Seer. So Jaduthan, these names, man, they, they kill me. I can't pronounce them. J, Jadut, we'll call him Jadut. He is the king's seer. Now we saw that Asaph was also a seer. Interestingly enough, we'll find out that Haman in 1 Chronicles 25.5 is also a, a seer. So we have the singers, the, son, the sons of Asaph. They're in their place according to the command of David, right? Um, and Asaph and Hanan and Jonathan were a part of that command. In other words, they played a role alongside David uh, to give commands and instructions to the singers, to the, to the instrument players, to the worship leaders, right? The choir masters. Asaph, Heman, and Jonathan were overseeing the instructions of that and giving the commands of that alongside David. So they were a part of instituting what you might call the, the singing, the praise of of the, the more organized worship session and the songs that are sung. They were a part of that. Um, and the gatekeepers were at each gate. They didn't need to depart from their service for their brothers, the Levites, prepared for them. Um, so if you go to First Chronicles 25, verse 5, we saw that Asaph's a seer, Jedithan. Now let me show you Heman, Haman. All these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer. A list of names. According to the promise of God to exalt him, for God had given Haman, 14 sons and three daughters. Okay, now watch. They were, the uh, Heman, the seer, he has children, blessed by God. Those children were under the direction of their father in the music in the house, with cymbals and harps and lyres for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jedithan, and Heman were under the order of the king. So again, we're talking about skillful musicians, singers, choir masters, those who declare and, and organize the praise of God's people and, and lead worship, lead the praise. And here we have, again, all three of those seers connected to that. And I, to be honest, I'm just letting you know something I observed. I'm not telling you an application to draw from it. I'm just saying the seers who specialize more in the visions, and I'll show you, I know I haven't necessarily validated that yet, that seers are those who specialize in the visions. Um, but, um, what was I going to say? I lost my train of thought. Come back to me. Seers are a part of the worship and praise of God's people. The institution of that, the songs that are written, um, the organization structure. And that th there might be, if, if you would like to draw some kind of connection, you can say possibly. Okay, There's a prophetic element besides just declaring the word of the Lord. There's a prophetic element to worshiping and praising God according to the prescribed way. 
um, and what that prescribed way is, I haven't done a study on. Maybe eventually I will. There are some people that know that better than me. I don't specialize in that. Um, but again, seers are, they're synonymous with prophets. In other words, they are prophetic voices, but they are also distinct in that more of their specialty is seeing images, pictures, visions. And to be honest, I relate a lot with that. I'm not really a dreamer. I'm not really a, the word of the Lord came to me. And I know people, if you're watching this and you're like, I don't believe any of this exists, go watch the other episodes. This probably isn't the episode to jump into. But this is what I relate with most. Not the dreams, not the prophetic word that's like in the middle of Costco, the Lord is like, hey, that woman right there, go minister to her. I'm more of the visions. And I'm not, I don't go after vision. I just pray. I just seek the Lord. And he happens to encounter me sometimes, not very often, not very frequently, but enough to take notice of it throughout my life that visions seem to be more of something that God gives me than dreams or those prophetic utterances, however you qualify that. So I relate a lot with this. And also, I'm just someone who loves to worship and praise. If there's a connection, doesn't mean God's, no one else can love worship and praise unless you specialize in visions prophetically. That's not what I'm saying. But all I'm saying is I, I, I relate with this. This hits me, okay? So kings had seers, right, for consultation, for warning, for direction, to hear the word of the Lord alongside the prophets. Um, and seers are related to worship. So they're, they're prophets, but they're a different kind of prophet, okay? Prophets were not these one-dimensional people that all this, all the, you know, all the time the prophetic worked like this. Some of them were dreamers. Joseph, Daniel, some of them were visionaries. Ezekiel, Isaiah, some of them were, this is what the Lord told me. Samuel, Elijah, Moses, okay? So we have the three categories there. Therefore, we can't assume that if someone has the gift of prophecy or their prophets instituted by God, that they will all look this way. There seems to be a kind of prophet. So beyond just figuring out, am I gifted prophetically? Has God ordained me to be a prophet in the body and to edify and build the church? You should probably figure out what it is that maybe you, uh, I, don't, I don't even know if, if I figure out what I specialize in or what I'm more naturally inclined to. I don't know that that would change my application and the way that I live, but it might be helpful to have that information. Okay, so uh, now we're going to move on to Old Testament visions. I'm going to do my best to not spend too much time because we're going to go through Abraham's vision, Balaam's vision, Samuel's vision, Nathan's vision, Micaiah's vision, Isaiah's vision, Jeremiah's vision, Daniel, Habakkuk's vision. Uh, and then we'll look at how some visions are more metaphorical, symbolic in nature. Some of them are literal. Okay, so even the visions themselves can be broken down. Some of them are a combination of the two, right? They're Hebrew poetry laced with literal statements. Um, and then the New Testament, we'll look at Zechariah's vision, Ananias' vision, Cornelius' vision, Peter's vision, and John the visionary in Revelation's vision. What I'm not going to give you is a manual on prophecy and visions because I don't think scripture can prescribe or is going to. I don't think scripture is intended. I'll say it like that. I don't believe the word of God is intended to prescribe to you a visionaries, a visions for dummies kind of manual. <clears throat> there's no step-by-step. -step. Here's, here's a rubric. There's just, hey, let's survey what visions typically look like. Let's survey different elements that are typically included in those visions. Let's find some commonality and let's 
hopefully, okay, I'm not gonna tell you what to think about these visions. I'm gonna trust the Spirit of God to do that because frankly, I can't tell you what to think about these specific visions necessarily. They're more descriptive in nature and not prescriptive. When you read the Bible, there's these things that are being described, right? Where it's like, uh, you know, Abraham slept with Hagar. That's not telling you or prescribing to you, hey, go and sleep with your handmaiden, okay? That's describing what happened. Other times, there's prescriptive, you know, details, like an instruction or a command. Like, hey, uh, you know, don't commit idolatry. That's prescriptive. It's telling you what to do. As we survey these visions, there's not necessarily a lot of prescription going on, right? There's not a lot of do this, don't do this. But when we look at it, there's a lot of wisdom to draw from in terms of learning how to discern or recognizing what is really a vision or knowing what to do with it or, you know, following up with the vision and knowing how to navigate, who do I consult, you know, that kind of stuff. I think the wisdom can be gleaned, but the actual instructive nature of it, it won't really be there as much as you want. So for those of you that are tuning in to be like, just tell me what to do about my vision. Tell me if it's of God. Tell me how to figure it out. I can't give you a rubric and a manual on that, but I can give you general wisdom principles like Proverbs does. Um, so let's start with Abram's vision. Genesis 15.1. This is interestingly enough, right before Abraham has that covenant sealing dream. Remember, Abram's going to receive a dream right before that he gets a vision. Notice the language though. And this is going to be typical for every vision that's experienced. It is always going to be a method through which the word of the Lord is communicated. In other words, here's one of the delivery systems for the word of God. Another delivery system might be an actual prophet. Another delivery system might be a dream. Another delivery system might be the actual scriptures, right? And one of these delivery systems is, a, is called a vision through which God declares and, and brings his word to a person. So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. So we have the word of God coming to Abraham in a vision. Did God have to show him this word? Not necessarily, but it seems to be a visual experience. And God chose to for a reason that maybe we can figure out. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So he's reassuring Abram with this vision. This is a reassuring, confident-inducing, emboldening vision. I'm with you. And it's also confirming his promises to Abraham. Abram said, oh, Lord, what will you give me? I'm childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, ah, you haven't, you haven't given me any offspring. Some member of my household is going to be my heir, a servant. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Eliezer is not going to be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside. So this vision, visionary experience that's happening, it's actually not just happening like uh, in the head of Abraham, right? Now it's taking on an actual physical reality dimension where this vision, where God is, the word of the Lord has come to Abraham in a visual experience. He, which you'd think, He's referring to the word of the Lord. That's the only one that's come to, to Abram is the word of the Lord. And he's referred to as Lord God. So you can think Christophany. You can think pre-incarnate Jesus. That might be reasonable to come, you know, of a conclusion to come to. But either way, the word of the Lord brings him outside now. Um, 
I don't know if this vision was in Abraham's head or if it was actually with his eyes. He was, he was seeing this around him. And now the word of the Lord, probably Christ, takes him by the hand, brings him outside. Or maybe he led him outside and said, come outside. But he says, look at heaven. Number the stars if you're able to. And then he said, that's how many offspring you'll have. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So this is a defining moment for Abraham in a visionary experience to really take God at his word. And then, okay, and then what's going to happen is a deep sleep is going to fall on Abraham. And right after the promise, right after the good news, God's going to give some bad news in the form of a dream. Typically, dreams and the night kind of visions are, like we talked about the last episode, more of a warning, a terror. Uh, not always great news. <laughs> um, whereas the visionary experiences, uh, at least for Abram, good news. You're going to have some offspring, okay? So this vision is given to Abraham to establish and clarify the promises of God. God has promised you're going to have a son, and here's a vision to actually validate that. Um, and then God's going to make a covenant in a dream. So you have this toggling in and out. Remember, God has spoken to Abram in a word of the Lord capacity, where it's just like God and Abram talking. But now we have this visionary dimension, and then we're going to have a dream dimension. And, and you start to wonder, why does God seem to, this seems confusing and unnecessary. From our perspective, I'm not saying it actually is, I'm saying it seems that way. When you're like, God, why not just speak to Abram in one consistent way of, you know, delivering your word? Well, because God speaks in variety for a variety of purposes. So even with Abraham, his experience with the word of God was not a one-dimensional thing. That doesn't mean, well, the normative practice now for every believer is that I will experience God in all these different, you know, capacities. Um, we can't draw that conclusion just from this text. But if we see that happen more frequently, especially in the New Testament, then we start to build a case that says, yeah, it seems to be that when God interacts with his people, engages with his people, it's not only and always just through one primary method. Through his word, through creation testifying and bringing us to our knees in awe of what scripture has communicated about the goodness and the glory of God and the majesty of God or visions and dreams. God, just with Abraham um, that I know of, has spoken to Abraham three, in three different ways. Dreams vision, um, and the actual word of the Lord coming. And, and also, in an, uh, God will assume a temporary human form and come to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. Um, let me take you to Balaam's vision, just do a summary, okay? Balaam is one of the seers. He gets oracles. <clears throat> now, this is what Numbers 24 says, okay? So here's kind of the story, just a rundown. Uh, the people of Israel are on the outskirts of Moab. Moab is a Gentile nation. Uh, they've heard about the God of Israel, how he took down Egypt and Pharaoh. They're terrified. The king of Moab runs to a, he's called a prophet in 2 Peter, um, but Balaam is his name. Balaam's a prophet. And the king of, of Moab runs to Balaam and he goes, hey, come curse this people. There's so many, they're going to take me out. And then Balaam tries and he seeks the word of the Lord and God says, I've blessed them, don't curse them, you can't. Um, essentially that happens after that, that happens three more times, okay? And now we have a final oracle of Balaam. 
after going to different locations, Balaam is uh, he's a diviner. In other words, he seeks omens and signs from things within the world. Like he'll bring animal sacrifices, and it seems to be that Balaam will seek for signs and clarity and omens in like the, the parts of an animal sacrifice. And the weird thing is that God does speak uh, in a clear way to Balaam. I don't know what to, to honestly do with that. But Balaam is definitely a, a diviner. Um, he dabbles in that stuff. Well, not even dabbles. He, that's like his life. And God seems to still speak to this Gentile uh, seer. Okay. So here's the last oracle of Balaam. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty. So Balaam's describing himself. Yeah, don't start taking animals apart. That'd be weird. Again, descriptive, not prescriptive. He sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. <clears throat> Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but he's not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It'll crush the forehead of Moab. Go back to Genesis 3, crush the head of the serpent, the promised seed of the woman. He's experiencing some glimpses of Christ. <clears throat> Break down all the sons of, Sh of Sheth. Edom will be dispossessed. Seir, all his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel's doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. And then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse. So now Balaam's declaring the word of God over Amalek, the Amalekites. Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is destruction. Then he looked on the Kenites and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Asher takes you away captive. And he'll go on. <clears throat> okay, this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. This is a prophecy, and it's interesting that um, he sees a star coming out of Jacob and a scepter. This is like Bethlehem language, wise men seeing a star rising over the, you know, the baby Jesus. Um, and Balaam gets to experience that. Now, prior to this, he had three other um, encounters with God, three other oracles that he gives to the king of Moab, right? Uh, and this, this seems to be happening in a visual capacity. Like if you scroll um, up again, the second to last oracle, he says the same thing. The man whose eye is open, who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty. Now, this vision doesn't seem to be, um, when you see visions at least happening, pun intended, in scripture, these visions aren't always, sometimes, okay, but aren't always with your physical eyes. Okay, scripture speaks to the spiritual eyes, the eyes of the heart being enlightened, um, the eyes of the mind being enlightened. So the visions that happened to at least Abraham, to Balaam, um, it seems to be that this is not with the physical eyes, right? But a vision of the mind, the immaterial, the spiritual eyes of the heart. Um, the way you see things playing out in your mind. I'm not saying it's a perfect parallel, but it's at least a good example of what might possibly be taking place. Now, of course, Abraham was taken out by the word of the Lord, and then he had a physical experience in real life, like it's actually happening to him. Um, but what you'll see with, I don't know, Ezekiel or, or Isaiah, um, is it seems to be a vision of um, the mind, 
um, how you, how we clarify and know for certain, I'm not entirely sure, but either way, Balaam gets visions, um, and he's given these visions, one, two, three, I think there's five total oracles that he gives to the king of Moab. These five visionary oracles are designed by God to protect the people of Israel. Okay, so Balaam was sent to curse, instead he blesses, and he declares what he sees. He declares what he sees. Um, now again, <clears throat> God does what he wants to advance his plan and his kingdom and protect his people. So we don't make a normative practice out of, hey, let's go cut up animals and look for signs and omens that's very uh, pagan in nature. And that's the opposite of what God wants for us. But there's something happening here where Balaam at least is getting the necessary information through these omens and that, that, that are required for the people of Israel to be protected. Samuel's going to have another kind of vision similar to Balaam and Abraham. First um, Samuel chapter three, we've gone through this already, so I don't need to uh, explain it in detail, but Samuel, you know, young little boy Samuel, he's being trained by Eli, the, the high priest, and Samuel's sitting in the temple, hears the voice of God three times, right? Runs to Eli each time going, yeah, what's up? And Eli goes, oh my gosh, the third time he goes, this is, the, this is God getting your attention. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Go lay back down, say, speak, Lord, your servant, you know, your servant is listening. And then God will declare to Samuel what he's about to do to Eli and his house. Eli, the high priest, and his children are not honoring God. God's going to bring an end to their priestly house. But it's interesting that he tells it to Samuel. Why? Well, to validate Samuel as a prophet. But Samuel, look, it says um, in right here. The boy Samuel was ministering in the presence of Eli, and watch, watch this very telling detail that's about to give you a glimpse into what's going to happen. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Vision. Now, these visionary experiences were not normative. It wasn't frequent. In fact, it wasn't happening a lot because there was not any real established honorable prophet among the nation of Israel. That's why the judges are sent, right? And then Samuel's raised up to kind of end those days and be the new prophetic voice. The word of the Lord was rare, but specifically the word of God that comes in a visionary experience. There was no frequent vision. And you say, well, how do you know that's what he's implying? Because this story starts and ends the same way. Watch. The Lord called to Samuel. Okay. Another thing that's interesting, Eli is noted as having eyesight that's grown dim physically, okay? But potentially, you know, maybe that's a play on the idea here, is that there's no vision in the, in the nation, there's no prophetic uh, voice, and there's no spiritual uh, sight you know, to see and honor God and obey him. Eli, being the high priest, um, also physically can't see. Maybe that's like a, a, a visual representation of the spiritual lack of vision among the nation. But either way, Samuel lying down, we don't know how old he is, he's young, and the Lord calls to Samuel, okay? And he said, here I am, okay? And this happens three times, boom, three times. Then the fourth time, the Lord came and he stood, calling Samuel, Samuel. And he goes, I'm ready for this one. Ah, Eli told me you'd be coming. I'm listening. And then he tells Samuel what he's about to do. Now look at how this ends, okay? 
Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Vision? I thought the word of the Lord came. That's, a, that's an auditory experience, right? That's God talking. That's God talking. Well, yeah, it's God talking through a visionary experience. So whatever Samuel, however Samuel's encountering the word of God, it's in the form of a vision. Okay? So Samuel now is afraid to tell the vision he had from God to Eli. But Eli goes, you better tell me, boy. And he tells him. Now here's how this little story ends. Samuel grew. The Lord was with him. Let none of his words fall to the ground. All Israel knew Samuel is a prophet. Guy's dope. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. Watch. He appeared again to Samuel. How did he appear the first time? The word of the Lord. This is the same way Abraham, Abram, encountered the word of the Lord. The word of God came and in a vision. Um, and also, uh, Abram seems to be encountering the word of God the same way Samuel is. In a, I'm seeing the word of God um, and I'm encountering the word of God. Because remember, the word of the Lord, who seems to be a he, he's assigned a personal pronoun, he takes Abraham out of his tent to look at the sky. And now the Lord appears again at Shiloh. That's what it says. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So the word of the Lord is always going to, uh, or I'll say it like this. A vision is always going to reveal the word of God or bring clarity or understanding or a depth of uh, comprehension to the word of God, right? And so no matter what, a vision Every time you see it happen in scripture, it's a way God communicates his word in a unique way for a different purpose than just, hey, let's listen to Torah get read in synagogue. Or, hey, let's listen to the priest tell us what the, 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 the Torah teaches. That's a different capacity of hearing the word of the Lord. Samuel was encountered by the word of God in a visionary experience. God revealed himself in that vision by the word of the Lord. That seems to be a frequent way Samuel encountered God. The Lord appeared again. It's a frequent thing because remember it starts off, there was no frequent vision. Samuel's going to change that. What God does with Samuel is going to shift the trajectory of the prophetic vision of nation, the nation of Israel. It's going to shift that. Samuel's going to mark a new era. Not because he's awesome, because God has ordained Samuel to do that. So the vision Samuel receives is appointing him as, as prophet. It's validating Samuel. It's initiating a new thing. It's bringing an end to the house of Eli and that priestly house that has grown wicked over time. God's doing a lot with this vision. He's appearing to Samuel. Um, and the word of the Lord is being delivered in that capacity. Because remember, Samuel is called a seer. He, he, I'm trying to think of any other prophet that hears from the Lord in that capacity that's also called a seer. Elijah is not, Elisha, I don't believe is called a seer, Moses is not called a seer, but you'll see Ezekiel, Isaiah, um, Habakkuk, uh, Zechariah, they experience the word of God in a visionary way, a visual way, just like Samuel, okay? So, number one, we know every vision comes with a purpose. Every vision is revealing to us the word of the Lord. Not always in a way that we didn't know before, right? Sometimes the word of the Lord, as you'll see, 
is confirming, establishing, clarifying, bringing a depth of understanding that is just more ideal through a vision. Like it happens, you and I have experienced this. We all learn differently. And I've explained this in the last episode, but we all encounter and experience and learn differently. Uh, Encounter God and experience Him differently. Uh, Meaning, what resonates with me is auditory things. I'm an auditory learner, so I can read, but I also have to be reading out loud to really have that word you know, be driven into my heart in a different way. So I can read quietly, but I won't retain the amount of information or understand as well as if I read out loud because I need to hear, I need to hear it. Um, some of you are visual experience, you know, learners. You need to see it to really understand. So like for those of you that are, let's just take the chosen, for example, you read the gospel of John and you're like, yes, I understand that is deep. It's profound. I'm seeing Christ in the eyes of my heart. But then when you see it play out, okay, and I'm not saying it's a perfect representation of scripture, but when you see actual stories play out that are completely aligned with the word of God and you go, wow, now I'm seeing Jesus do what I read about in scripture. This is a way it could have played out. This takes the word of God and drives it deeper or gives me a a level of understanding and comprehension that I didn't previously have. And we've already talked about how that doesn't minimize the sufficiency of Scripture. It actually confirms that the Word of God is sufficient, but it, it, it comes to us and it resonates with us. And it, it uh, I guess we experience that Word in different varying degrees and ways. And that's okay. That doesn't minimize the sufficiency of the Word of the Lord, primarily being Jesus himself. Uh, let's go to Nathan. Nathan actually sees a vision. If you don't read it carefully, you'd miss that it's a vision. Okay, so here's the story. David goes, I want to build a house for God. I feel bad for the guy. Like I have a, a house. I'm the king. He's the God of creation. And he didn't have a house. I got to build my guy a house. Right? Nathan goes, do it. God is with you. Yes. And then Nathan gets corrected. And then he comes back, and I know some people read this as Nathan not getting corrected. We'll talk about this in the false prophecy series or the episode, okay? But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. This is at least a clarifying word, if not a corrective word. Go and tell my servant, and he'll go, you going to build me a house? I don't need a house. I appoint, you know, uh, shepherds and judges. I don't necessarily need a house, (laughs) Essentially what God's going to say, but he'll take it. It's a very kind gesture. Um, he'll say, I, I will appoint a place uh, for, for me to dwell in among my people. He'll talk about what will happen when your days are fulfilled. You'll lie down with your fathers. And this is Nathan declaring this to David. Because David's moving forward going, yeah, God's with me. I can build this house. And then the word of God comes to Nathan. And he goes, actually, that's for Solomon. He'll build a house. So I'm not with David like you thought, like that. Um, I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He'll build a house for my name, mostly about Jesus, right? But Solomon also is secondarily going to build a physical house. I'll be to him a father. He'll be to me a son. Talk about what, you know, that son of David will be like. Uh, Solomon will definitely need correction and discipline. Your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever. A God reaffirms, like this is the Davidic covenant. I'll be with you. I'll put an offspring on on your throne. You'll never lack a son on the throne of Israel and notice how Nathan received this word of God. In accordance with all these words 
in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So, this clarifying word for David came to Nathan, the prophet, in a visionary kind of experience. Visual capacity. Whether eyes of the heart or actually physical with the eyes, I don't know. I can at least confidently say that uh, it's, it, it involves the mind. Whether it's just in the mind or he's seeing with his eyes, at least it's happening in the mind of Nathan, okay? As the prophet. God knows how to get words across to us in visions. He, he's very good at, he's a big boy, right? So God knows how to communicate to his prophets. What's interesting is Gad is David's seer in this time. So Nathan's the prophet, Gad is a seer, and yet Nathan, as a prophet, also gets a vision, okay? So we're not gonna be restrictive about this, and this is where people get into trouble, is they place these unbiblical restrictions and rules on prophecy that scripture doesn't give us. Like, well, if you're a prophet, not a seer, you'll never have a vision. Apparently not. That's not a rule God has or established or given us. Nathan's just your normal prophet. He's not called a seer. He's actually distinguished from Gad the seer, and he gets a vision, okay? So this vision was to direct David in his decisions and to confirm the covenant and to reassure David that his house will be good. It might fall apart for a while, but Jesus will pick up the broken pieces and be the perfect son and build the perfect house. So this is more about prophetically declaring uh, the, the one who will come, the true king of David or king of Israel, true son of David, okay? There's a truer son of David. Solomon kind of fit the bill. He messed up. Jesus is a better, perfect version. He's better than David. So this vision has multiple purposes. And again, I, I didn't, I, I told you that I was not going to tell you what to conclude personally about these visions. I'm just going to give you the data and I trust the Spirit of God to clarify how this gets all sorted out in our theology. Um, but I'm presenting the Word of God because I like this because I don't believe there's any prescriptive instructions within these. Okay? Um, Micaiah. My guy, Micaiah. He's not a guy you want at your birthday party or your baby shower if you're King Ahab, which none of you are, so praise God. Micaiah sees a vision. Now, King Jehoshaphat and King Ahab are about to go to war. King Jehoshaphat goes, hey, Ahab, let's hear from God. Let's make sure we're going in the right direction. Ahab goes, sure, I got 400 prophets. Hey, prophets, are we going to win this war? Prophets go, yes, absolutely. Ain't no chance you're going to lose, Ahab. You the man. Ahab goes, see, we're good. Joseph goes, eh. Is there anyone else we can hear? Because that was kind of weird. They were all at the same time unanimous. And are there any other prophets? Ahab goes, yeah. Micaiah, or Micaiah, he's a weenie. He never tells me what I want to hear, man. Micaiah comes, right? And Ahab goes, look, Micaiah, we're going to go to war. I think it's with Syria. Uh, are we going to win? Are we going to be fine? You know what Micaiah says? Yeah, go and triumph. You'll do great. You'll do great. But the king said, mm, he's suspicious. Micaiah, you always say mean things about me. Are you actually telling the truth? 
And Micaiah goes, you got me. I saw all Israel. I saw all of Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said. So not only does Micaiah see something, the Lord speaks about what he's seeing. That seems to be consistent with the visions that are given to uh, Abraham or Nathan or Samuel, right? There's, there's clarification. It's not just visionary. It's also understanding. Now, we've already talked about in previous episodes how the understanding is not always immediate, how the meaning and interpretation is not always immediate. Sometimes, in the case of like Daniel, the meaning of the vision doesn't come at all in your lifetime. And he just gets to write it down for future generations to figure out and understand. Daniel, though, he just gets a vision that he does not understand toward the end of Daniel chapter 12. So we've already talked about how the interpretation meaning of a vision is not always immediate and isn't always coming from the person who received the vision. Sometimes the interpretation and meaning comes from another person, like the dreams uh, we talked about last episode, or sometimes not at all. So the Lord clarifies for Micaiah as Micaiah is seeing this. These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I told you Micaiah always tells me bad stuff. <sighs> and Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord. So the word of God came in a what? A visual experience. He saw the Lord sitting on his throne. It's very unique, by the way. And all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? One, one said one thing, another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I'll entice him. I'll get him. And the Lord said, How? What are you going to do? And he said, I'll go out and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets, all 400 of them. And he said, you're to entice him and you'll succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. What does God allow? He allows a lying spirit to lead the prophets in the deception they're already loving and enjoying and just kind of you know, give them what they're already used to. They've rejected the word of the Lord. They've rejected truth. They don't want to hear from God. They have decided to live in delusion and deception and lies. So God just kind of gives them what they're already working with and what they want. And uh, we could spend a lot of time on just this story. But the, the point is Micaiah's vision. He sees, okay? And then God confirms what this means, what this, you know, and then God gives him an, an actual experience of what it was like for this whole thing to come about. Micaiah's a lucky fella, except he's going to be thrown in prison now. So he's not lucky in that capacity, but he definitely got to see some cool stuff. Sucks to be Micaiah, okay? But man, <clears throat> that's cool. And that must have been confusing. I'm sure his theology went, what? What is happening? Um, so that's Micaiah. Micaiah's vision, what he receives, the purpose of it is, is to, to direct King Ahab and Jehoshaphat, right? He's trying to direct them and let them know, God showed me this. Guess what? Ahab is not going to listen because it's not what he wants to hear. God knew that, which is why he ordained this whole thing and allowed it to play out. He knew that even if he brought the truth to Ahab, he 
would not want it. He wouldn't want it. Isaiah 6, this is interesting. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. Kind of like Micaiah. Okay? Visions aren't always this high and lofty. Where it's like, I actually saw God on a throne. Could God do that? Sure. But how often that happens, all I know of is Isaiah, Micaiah, Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Um, Ezekiel sees God coming down on his little throne mobile. And um, I think that's pretty much it. I could be missing some. But the point is, visions aren't always this high and lofty heavenly thing. Sometimes it's just like Micaiah saw. I just saw all of Israel scattered on the mountains. Like, I saw defeat. God showed me that. And then he showed me how that came about. And I'm here to warn you, Ahab, okay? So, um, Isaiah 6, he sees the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. And with two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. That's why people don't draw seraphim. Because you don't, probably don't want to visualize that. You'll have nightmares. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, woe is me for I'm lost. So this vision gives Isaiah an awareness of his own uncleanness and sinfulness like he's never known. He sees the gap between God's holiness and his sinfulness, right? So he's rocked to the core. He goes, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now again, these visions aren't clarified as being with the physical eyes or in the eyes of the mind. Okay, it's, it's not clarified which is which. Okay, but John, you and Ken are hilarious. I'm trying not to laugh at you guys. But um, there's potential for either. Okay, so when people tell you of, I'll, I'll tell you from my experience. Okay, I've never had a physical vision where my eyes see things. Oh, kind of like Elisha. Remember Elisha's being hunted down by the king of Syria. The king of Syria sends an army to Elisha. Elisha's with his servant. His servant's like, I just crap my pants. I don't know what to do. All these people are going to kill us. And Elisha goes, oh, buddy. God, would you open his eyes so he can see? And Elisha's servant actually sees chariots of fire in the mountains. Right? It's a physical vision. Okay? That is possible. But I've never had that happen, okay? Is that normative? Is that frequent? Is that what a vision, is that how we should expect a vision to come to us? No, I don't think so. Because, uh, for instance, Peter's going to have a trance. Cornelius is going to have this, this kind of visionary experience during his, his prayer time. These seem to be visions of the mind and the heart, not the eyes. You and I think vision, and like God's going to show up and be like, hello, my friend. And I'm like, I... That's God. That's, that's not how it happens. Um, but for Elisha and, you know, his servant, that was a unique thing, I guess. I'm trying to think of where else that might have happened. I wish I would have included that in my notes. I don't know where I was going with that. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, woe is me. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Okay, so maybe, like the visions, that's where I was going with that. The visions I've had have always been in my mind. When I just close my eyes or when I'm praying, I, I, the visions I have are just out of, out of left field, man. Came out of nowhere. I wasn't like working my way to that vision and, tr and building it. It just happened to me. And then I took notice of it and I prayed. And I'm not saying everything that happens to you like that is God giving you a vision. But that is how most of the visions I've had in my life have happened. Is I'm not seeking for it. I'm just seeking God. And then there's this in my mind's eye. It's like a dream. You know what I mean? Where you, that you daydream. That's, what it's, that's the terminology we use in our culture. We daydream. Maybe a vision can be likened to more of a daydream. Um, maybe your eyes don't have to be closed. Maybe they have, they don't have to be, uh, or maybe they have to be. I, I, scripture doesn't necessarily tell us. Isaiah's eyes were closed. It just says, I saw, I saw vision. And then God will call him who will go. And then Isaiah goes, pick me, coach, put me in. And God calls Isaiah as a prophet. So this vision, okay, is to appoint Isaiah as a prophet. Jeremiah chapter 24, Jeremiah receives a vision of what's to come, okay? He's letting Judah know, hey, God showed me this vision that Babylon's coming against you. Two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. Now that right there is more of a uh, metaphorical vision. Two baskets, one basket had very good figs, like the first ripe figs. The other basket had very bad figs. So bad they couldn't even be eaten. And the Lord said, what do you see? This happened in Jeremiah 1, where Jeremiah goes, I see an almond branch. And God goes, sweet. Second vision. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see a boiling pot coming from the north. Cool. Now, Jeremiah 24, a third time. Um, I don't know if there's anything in between. But God explains, you know, the other basket had very bad figs. The Lord said, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, ah, figs, very good. Some very bad that can't be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Do you see that sometimes the vision comes before the word? And at sometimes the vision and the word are happening simultaneously, where it's like the visionary experience is coming with commentary, like Sports Center, where you're like you're watching the players play and the commentator's like, ooh, that's a hard hit. God sometimes does that. And again, the frequency of this, frequency, what I frequency of this we can't put a limitation on or even like cap it and go well god will only do it this much i'm just saying sometimes the vision comes with that commentary the word of god clarifying other times it's a vision and then the word of the lord comes to clarify and sometimes the gap between the vision and the interpretation or meaning is longer than you'd like and sometimes the interpretation or meaning will come through another person that if you're in community with and actually following God, he'll bring it to you through that brother or sister. We already talked about that. The word of the Lord came to me saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, like these good figs. So this is more of like, let me show you an image, a, a visual representation of what I'm going to do. God could have said, look, I, um, these, I, I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I've sent away into the land of Cal the Chaldeans. Because remember, some of them leave, go out to King of Babylon. You know, they take the word of the Lord and they end up going into exile. I'll set my eyes on them for good and I'll bring them back to this land. I'll build them up and not tear them down. I'll plant them and not pluck them up. I'll give them a new heart to know I 
am the Lord. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But the bad figs, so will I treat Zedekiah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem. In other words, Jeremiah is going, you think it's bad that people got taken from Jerusalem? Those are the people God is actually pleased with. He's bringing them into exile, caring for them. You guys who are in Jerusalem still, it's not good. I'll make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse. And all the places where I'll drive them, and then I'll bring sword and famine. So God could have just said, hey, the people who are in Jerusalem, like, the disaster's coming. The people who left, everyone's like, losers. God's like, actually, those are the guys I'm pleased with. He could have just said that to Jeremiah. But instead, he gives him a vision. Why? Why use this this imagery and use metaphorical you know, images of, look, a fig represents good people. Bad figs represent bad people. They're not even so, they're so bad they can't be eaten. Why go to that length? Because I, I'm trying to help you understand that I believe when God speaks in different capacities, it brings a different dimension of understanding or clarification or highlights a specific detail that would be, that's way better than just hearing. Because for Jeremiah to be like, yes, God, you will. But to visually see a representation of that, that will drive the word a little deep. It, it comes with a deeper gravity, like a more of a weight, like, oh, I get this. Because I saw what you said in a visual representation. So sometimes visions are exactly that. It, it makes the word more real. And if you're not okay with that, then you're not okay with how God speaks. And that's okay, I guess. Jeremiah 38, right? So Jeremiah 24 is just Jeremiah declaring judgment against Israel, okay? Um, Jeremiah 38. So I'm just, we're gleaning some, when we look at all these different instances, you can start to build uh, out an understanding of how visions will come typically or how they'll be understood or, and why God does it. And that understanding will help you in life. I just want to give you understanding is all. Jeremiah 38. Uh, Jeremiah says, if you refuse to surrender, here's the vision God showed me. All the women left in the house of King of Judah were being led out. Now remember, this is not necessarily just God telling Jeremiah. Jeremiah is seeing in a vision, women being led out of their houses by the, with the officials. Um, the king of Babylon, okay? You, your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn from you. All your wives and your sons will be led out to the Chaldeans. You yourself will not escape, but will be seized by the king of Babylon. The city will be burned with fire, okay? Then Zedekiah said, let no one know about these words, and you shall not die. So again, the word of the Lord comes in a vision. That's okay, because God knows why his word needs to come to a person in that specific method. He knows what he's accomplishing. I don't need to question and go, hmm, why, why a vision today? I just need to receive and pray through and discern what God is trying to tell me, okay? Because for Jeremiah, sometimes it's a word of the Lord just comes to him. Other times it's, I saw in a vision, right? 
why the variety? You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, neither of these are broken. They just accomplish different things at different points in the lives of different people. Um, Daniel chapter 2. Uh, we already read Daniel. How like King Nebuchadnezzar was like, I had a bad dream. If you guys can't tell me what it means, I'm going to kill you all. It's like, well, it's, it's a little harsh, right? Well, he was really serious. Daniel hears about it. He prays. Him and his boys get together. And guess what? God reveals the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the interpretation in a what? In a vision of the night. Did Daniel pray for a vision? No. He prayed, right? He asked, well, his friends to seek mercy about this mystery. So essentially they're going, God, please be merciful to us, spare our lives, and help us know what King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and what it means. And the, the, the revelation comes in a vision. Okay? So quite possibly, is there a precedence to say that sometimes God will answer a prayer request or solve a problem, start to solve a problem with a vision? Can that play a role in God answering your prayer and helping you through something and bringing direct? Sure, sure. Now again, this is not an isolated case. Let's go on to Habakkuk. Okay, Habakkuk actually calls Israel to repentance. He speaks judgment against Israel. Okay? <clears throat> and look, just like John says, Daniel's a prayer. Daniel is a prayer. He's a prayer warrior, man. Um, and the way that God answers Daniel's prayer is in a vision. Now, of course, he's asking for understanding. And God answers with a vision. So Daniel, again, he, he's not necessarily the... Uh, he's not said to be a visionary by gifting. He's more of a dreamer of dreams, understanding of dreams. That's his gifting, Okay. And yet God does still answer and speak to him in a vision, which is distinct from a dream that is different. Dreams happen in a visionary capacity, right? Where you're, you're around, it's, it's happening. But I, I think the difference, a helpful distinction would be just like, think daydream versus you're asleep kind of dream. Um, and I don't know all this psychology behind dream states and what's happening chemically in your brain and you know, just the fact that God works with what we, the raw material of our human existence. He'll work with that, right? Habakkuk 1.1, the oracle Habakkuk the prophet saw. Remember the oracle Balaam gave? Balaam is called a prophet. He's, he's actually uh, called, a, he's lumped in with the false prophets in, in, in Peter's writings. And Balaam actually had oracles. He saw visions, right? I'm not making Habakkuk a false prophet. I'm saying Balaam, this is the first time we see an oracle, you know, giving of a word. That word is actually used of uh, Balaam too. So he saw something and then he'll go on to complain about Israel and go, Israel's so messed up. The people of God are just living in sin, right? Um, and then God will answer, right? answer with the judgment that's coming but look he saw this so Habakkuk is actually praying in a in a in a loving there's a way to like um 
Oh, hey, Jen, good to see you. Uh, there's a way to biblically bring your complaint before God, okay? We've talked about that in my prayer series. You can go watch that. Habakkuk seems to be doing that. Look at what's happening. Will you do something about it? How long will this go on? God answers, I'm bringing judgment. Habakkuk experiences that word in a vision. He sees it. He sees it. Now, again, when you think see, don't think physical eyes, right? That can play a role in it sometimes, right? But mostly, just in the mind's eye, in the eyes of the heart, the spiritual eyes of the person. Um, I will say this, okay? Some visions are very literal. Some visions are very literal, like this is gonna happen, no way around it, this is not symbolic, you're actually gonna die. Some visions, however, are metaphorical and, and Hebrew poetry. A lot of Isaiah, a lot of Ezekiel, a lot of Jeremiah. The, 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 a lot of prophecy is actually Hebrew poetry, you know, interlaced with some um, literal statements and, and imagery and symbolic, you know, pictures. But the, a lot of prophecy is actually given poetically and with, with symbols and images. So know that, okay? We've already established in previous episodes, okay, that God doesn't always give the interpretation of a vision if one is needed, okay? Sometimes the vision is very straightforward, very clear. And the commentary, you might say, or the, the understanding God gives with the vision. But if a vision requires interpretation, understanding, meaning, uh, sometimes God gives it immediately. Sometimes God gives the interpretation or the meaning to another person and not the one who received the vision. Other times, like in the case of Daniel, uh, the vision doesn't make sense completely to the individual at all in their lifetime. Or sometimes the inter interpretation is made progressively clear, like in the case of Peter, when he receives that vision about the Gentiles and unclean animals. So, so you can, if you have not heard me address these points and prove them biblically, go watch my first video on prophecy. That will give you uh, my biblical reasoning for saying these things. I'm not pulling them out of my butt. Like they're in scripture. So again, much of prophecy is Hebrew poetry and imagery and metaphorical pictures. And so Isaiah chapter one, verse one, he starts off his prophetic writings and everything he's going to declare against Israel and different nations. <clears throat> the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw. What was it about? Judah, Jerusalem in the days of these kings. So how does God communicate his word to Isaiah about what he's about to do to Judah and Jerusalem? Well, he communicates it in a vision. Whoa, isn't that cool? So Isaiah, most of his writing is, okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we could spend weeks just on like Isaiah and Ezekiel. But I'm trying to just give you a general overview that the visions of Isaiah are recorded in what we call the prophecy of Isaiah. The prophecy comes in the form of a vision. Jeremiah chapter 1. Remember how I said Jeremiah, when he's called a prophet at his young age, God calls him, the word of the Lord comes to him. And guess what? Jeremiah, um, right here, sees something. Jeremiah, the word of the Lord comes, how? In a vision. I see an almond branch. God goes, sweet, great job. Second one, what do you see? Another vision comes, the word of the Lord, you know, in a visionary experience. And he says, I see a boiling pot facing from the north. And then God will give details on that. 
Uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, 3 through 20. I don't think I have to prove to you that visions are often, you know, laced with imagery and symbolism. And that's why a lot of people will say, every vision I have has some deeper symbolic meaning. Or every, every dream I have has a metaphorical meaning. I need to go find a prophet. No, that's not true. Not every dream is God speaking to you. Not every vision of your head is God speaking to you. There's a way to discern. There's a way to prayerfully consider these things and arrive at a confident conclusion. There's a way to make sense of them. But even if it is from God, it's not always some deeper metaphorical symbolic meaning. Sometimes it's very straightforward. Sometimes it does need interpretation and clarification from another brother or sister who is gifted in that capacity. And that's great. We all play our role in the body, right? But sometimes it's very straightforward and very understandable. Um, so again, I'm just trying to lift some of the misconceptions we have around visions and prophecy. Uh, I, I don't, for sake of time, like I'm just going to give you a bunch of scriptures for, uh, you know, different prophecy visions being metaphorical and symbolic. Daniel chapter eight verse ten. Okay, you'll have images of um, different horned creatures, which is representative of kingdoms. Ezekiel 8 through 11, okay? Uh, I believe that's the section on the, on the nations, different nations that are receiving judgment. Uh, what's going on in the temple? So Ezekiel sees what's happening. Um, that's a long section, and it's, that's Ezekiel 8 through 11, like chapter 8 through chapter 11. Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel sees a vision of the temple. Um, pretty much Zechariah chapter 1 through 6. That's why I'm not going through it, because I don't have time to read chapter after chapter after chapter. It can get too detailed. I'm trying to avoid that, okay? I want to jump New Testament and let you know that what we see true of visions in the Old Testament uh, will ring true in the New. Um, that the visions carry a purpose. They're a method through which the word of the Lord is, is brought. Um, they play a role. Visions play a role in that season or for that person, um, for that moment or that decision, right? Sometimes visions bring extra clarification, an extra oomph to get to work. <clears throat> Sometimes visions are the way to, you know, get us to actually take something seriously and warn us. Um, or to give you, uh, like Abram. Abram re received a vision of something he would never see, which is, you know, uh, the future offspring, the blessing to the nations. It came in a vision. Um, and so sometimes, like Daniel, Daniel's a good example. Daniel chapter 8 through 10 is a great example of stuff that will happen that Daniel will not necessarily see. It's in the future. Um, sometimes that happens. But again, there almost becomes like a checklist you can start to develop if, if, you, if you're one of those like overly analytical, like, I just need it. I'm a linear thinker. Okay. Maybe you can develop a checklist. Go back and watch these. Like, is this warning? Is this futuristic? Is this symbol? Is this even from God? You know, did, did this come with an interpretation? You know, you can start to kind of go down the list and make sense of what you think is a vision. And then from there go, now what do I do to even figure out if it is? And once I'm more certain, yeah, this, this definitely was different. How do I get clarity on it? If clarity was not given with the vision itself, which again, doesn't always happen, but if the clarity didn't come with the vision and I just saw a picture and I believe there's, there's actually some deeper meaning behind it uh, that relates to my life and I get that sense, I should go find trusted uh, 
God-fearing, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled individuals who are very wise and good at counseling. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he receives uh, a vision, actually, to inform him of an answered prayer. Him and his wife had been wanting a child. Um, they're righteous, right? They're, they're God-fearing, uh, God-fearing couple. And the vision comes to direct him on how to raise this promised son that's coming to him. So Zechariah is serving as priest, right? Uh, everyone outside is praying. And, he, and when <clears throat> Zechariah goes in to do his part, um, to enter the temple and burn incense, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. So, this seems to be more of like physical eyes. I'm seeing right in front of me what's happening. Okay, angel says, don't be afraid. You're about to have a boy. Name him John. Zechariah goes, how do I know this will happen? I am old man. My wife's womb is dusty. You know, and uh, Gabriel goes, well, if you don't believe me, I'm going to mute you until John actually is born. And so everyone's waiting for Zechariah to come out, going, what's well, taking so long? And when he came out, he was unable to speak. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple. Now, is that an accurate assessment on the part of the people? Did they assume? Luke records it as they realized he seen, he'd seen a vision. So what kind, to what degree was this in the mind's eye? To what degree did he actually see it with his physical eyes? We don't have any clarification on that. Um, just that, Initially, when you read it, you go, oh, the angel appeared right in front of him, you know, and he's like, oh, my goodness. And then after it's like, well, it seems to be a vision. Could it be both? Could it be both? Could, could it have been partially experienced in the mind and then partially with the, the physical eyes? Sure. Why not? <clears throat> um, Zechariah is actually filled with the spirit and he prophesies after this. Um, he declares the word of the Lord after seeing an angel come and deliver the word of the Lord. So that's cool. Remember how I said like sometimes a vision presents an answer to prayer. Daniel prayed for clarity, a vision comes. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth wanting a child, praying for a child. I don't know if they're still praying or if they gave up at this point, but I'm sure you can assume they prayed, you know, and and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and um, then God answers by sending an angel and giving Zechariah a vision. So there's two occurrences where a vision is actually part of God answering and directing uh, and doing something that you've been praying for. Acts chapter 9, um, we have Ananias. Saul just encountered God on the road to Damascus. He's blind. Uh, God had to kind of shut him down for a little bit. And then Ananias is sent, but before he's sent, God says to him in a vision. Now, Ananias didn't have to receive a vision. Ananias could have just heard the word of the Lord, and that would have been fine. Why does the word of God come in a vision? Again, I've already explained, God has his purposes for the reason, for the reason he communicates the way he does, um, or the reason is the purpose. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, rise, go to the street called Straight. So here's direction, right? He's directing Ananias to heal and confirm Saul as a brother. How does he do this? In a vision. So he goes, rise, go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus. He is praying. 
he has seen in a vision, oh, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he can regain his sight. Ananias eventually goes, yeah, you know what? I'll do this. Even though Saul's kind of terrifying, I'm going to go because the Lord has shown me to do it. Saul, at the same time, is receiving a vision, or at least before this, he's, you know, receiving a vision that, hey, Saul, Ananias is going to come. He's going to lay his hands on you. You'll regain your sight. This is like double confirmation, right? So God is confirming Saul as, you know, a brother by Ananias going, and Saul is being confirmed the word of God even more by experiencing a vision of Ananias and then Ananias comes, right? So this is bolstering his faith. This is confirming his encounter with Jesus. This is not that you need any more confirmation. This is making it abundantly clear what he's called to do and, and, and the fact that this is indeed legit, the God of Israel, right? So these are com- confirming visions that play hand in hand. Sometimes, at, at least in this case, right, the vision Ananias receives is supposed to be uh, paired with the vision Saul receives, right? <clears throat> Therefore, um, I guess you could say it like this. You don't know how uh, the vision you're receiving uh, connects to the person you're called to go and meet or what you're called to do. On the other end of that could be a person who received a vision as well, and you stepping out and doing what the vision entailed could be confirming for them. Um, seems to be that God can work that in, right? God uses his people. He loves to use his people, not because he has to, but because he loves to, and he loves partnering with us. So he uses Ananias. God could have, how could have God, um, he says, could God have used another way to confirm Saul or to help Saul? Could God have used another method? Sure. Why did he use Ananias? Well, because Ananias is already, you know, part of the body, seemingly believes in, in the Messiah. And Ananias might have a, you know, reputation. So maybe by sending Ananias, it lends credence and it, it, it gives Paul, Paul credibility um, as a, a brother, even though it doesn't seem to work because he goes to Jerusalem. People are like, ah, shh, you saw, right? Cornelius receives a vision, doesn't he? Remember? About the ninth hour, he saw clearly in a vision. Now, again, the sight, whether spiritual or physical, is not clarified, I think, intentionally. Otherwise, otherwise we might go around uh, thinking... A vision has to look like this. My physical eyesight is involved. Or a vision is only going to involve the mind's eye. I think the, we can all attest to the fact that sometimes um, we've had either experience, like visionary experiences in my mind where God is confirming or establishing or giving me direction or whatever it may be. And then, like, um, I'm not saying I've had physical uh, encounters with Jesus, right? But, um, I don't know where I was going to go with that. Either way, okay. Oh, that's what I was going to say, is sometimes when we're walking with God, um, what he allows our eyes to see, maybe not a vision, but what he allows our eyes to see 
plays a huge part of an answered prayer or directing our steps or telling us whether we should really go through with what we've decided, you know. Um, and so God can and does use both the physical eyesight and the spiritual eyes. Can a vision come to either or? It seems like that. I don't get to decide how. And Cornelius isn't seeking a vision, right? He's um, presumably praying. He's a Gentile. Uh, just praying continually to God, fears the Lord about the ninth hour, which I believe is an hour of prayer, 3 p.m., right? I think that's one of the hours of prayer. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, hey, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror, stared at him in terror. Now, we've had experiences like this in daydreams or, or actual dreams. Um, this could be an actual physical experience, for sure, with his actual eyesight. But the angel of God comes and says, Cornelius, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said, well, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, send men to Joppa, bring Simon, and he'll tell them where Simon is. Simon has something to tell you. And then Simon, Peter, right now, um, or at least around this time, right, as Cornelius is receiving this from God, and an angel comes and gives him direction, Peter's receiving a vision around the same time. Uh, the next day as they were approaching on the city, oh, sorry, this is the following day, my mistake. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So just like Cornelius seems to be praying and a vision comes. Now again, by the way, an angel of the Lord uh, can and does come in dreams, can and does come in visions, and can and does show up to people. Like, what's up, boy? That happens. Again, uh, almost like that threefold, uh, threefold idea of prophecy. Visions, dreams, and like the word of the Lord coming in like a, uh, I can't think anymore. I've, I've reached my end. Um, but the angel of the Lord also encounters people in that, in that, in those three different ways. And here it's a vision. Um, Peter's hungry. He wants something to eat. Guess what? He actually falls into a trance. To a trance. <clears throat> He's praying, by the way. He's praying. You wonder if the hunger plays into that trance. He kind of like, I'm just not able to focus. I'm so hungry or I'm tired. He saw the heavens open. Something like a great sheet descends, right? And then in it are all these animals. God says, rise and kill Peter. Peter goes, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And then the voice comes a second time. Don't call what I've made clean. What God has made clean, don't call common. This happened three times. Thing was taken up to heaven. Three times he receives the same vision. Why? Why not just clarify the first time? Why give Peter a second vision with just as little clarification and understanding? Why give Peter a third, a vision, same vision the third time and same amount of understanding? Because look, Peter's inwardly perplexed. He does not know what's happening, but guess what? The understanding of the vision comes progressively. As the, you know, the messengers from Cornelius come knocking on the door, Peter starts to make sense because the Spirit says, hey, go down there. Which, by the way, not only was Peter pondering the vision, he just encountered God in a vision trance, but now the Spirit says, hey, three men are looking for you. Why doesn't God just clarify by speaking to Peter by the Spirit like he is right here? Why not just say, hey, I have not 
you know, I've pretty much brought the, the gospel to the Gentiles too, so let's not call them unclean. What's up, Dave? Good to see you. Mr. Dave. So, you know, you start, when you start to think about this, you go, God could have, but he did not. He could have just bypassed the whole vision and said, hey, Peter, I'm going to talk to you by my spirit. Listen, a couple guys about to come. I'm about to make Gentiles part of the kingdom in, in a very clear sense. Don't worry, go with them. Preach the gospel. The Peter doesn't get that kind of experience, though. In other words, God clarifies understanding and interpretation of the vision along the way. As Peter just takes one step and lets the people in his house, lets the Gentiles in his house. And he goes, the Spirit said to let them in. And then they go to the house of Cornelius. The, the understanding of the vision progressively unfolds. Why not immediate? Why use a vision at all? You start to ask these things. And I don't believe there's any clear definitive answer except that like I've been saying all along God speaks how he wants when he wants to what degree he wants and shares whatever details he wants to accomplish what he wants so stop being so restrictive and adding rules around prophecy or stipulations that scripture never ever gives us because you start to operate like Eve and go well God said we can't even touch the tree, you know. You start putting rules in God's mouth that he never said. And you go, well, if prophecy is really going to happen, it's going to. Who told you that? Where's the, the clear scripture that actually indicates to us it will always look like this? Or, I mean, like I've said over and over, with some people, like Peter, uh, Abraham, Samuel, I'm trying to think who else. And of course you go, well, these are unique scenarios. Eh, what is unique? <laughs> Define unique. Everyone has a different standard for what unique is. We measure that differently. So I would just say, I can think of three people who God speaks to in at least three different ways. Why? Just speak in one way, Lord, right? Well, no. The, the point is, it accomplishes something different for that, you know, a simple word might not have. And that doesn't mean the, the, that minimizes the word of the Lord. That means the word of the Lord came in a vision, and then God progressively clarifies, because he knows Peter's a hardhead maybe, right? Peter's just like difficult to work with. And so then he speaks by his spirit. And he goes, okay, let's, let's, let's work you into this. Um, Paul has visions in Acts chapter 16, right? So um, there's your visions, man. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. Sometimes there are night visions. Nighttime visions seem to be a little different than dreams. And I can attest to that. I'm a, I'm a case study of that. I have dreams where I'm like, that was weird. And as I'm falling asleep, I haven't, I haven't started dreaming. I'm not dreaming. But I, I have these visions in my mind. Um, and only one time so far in my life have I concluded uh, that a vision in the night was in fact uh, God at that time. And that was the last one I shared that received a lot of pushback and made me do this. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, right? Because the Spirit of God has prevented them from going into Asia. Um, the Spirit of God uh, didn't allow them to go into Bithynia. And so Paul and his boys are getting a lot of no's. I'm like, what the heck, man? Every time we try, the Spirit's saying no, no. And then they pass by Messiah, go down to Troas. A vision appears to Paul in the night. 
a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, come over to Macedonia, help us. When Paul saw the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding God called us to preach the gospel to them. So guess what? Was this something that needed to be uh, decrypted? Where it's like, here's a riddle, here's a symbolic dream, here's a vision that has a lot of metaphorical images that, that pair to different symbols in scripture. No, it's pretty straightforward. Paul sees a man in Macedonia saying, help. He goes, I know how to help. I can preach the gospel. Let's go to Macedonia. They concluded God called them to preach the gospel to them. Why? If God has already in Acts, lots of times spoken very clearly and directly by his spirit, why show Paul a man from Macedonia again, hey, we need help. Why not just say, hey, Paul, you know, don't go into Asia, don't go into Bithynia, go to Macedonia. Why a vision? Again, I think the answer is always going to be because he's accomplishing what he wants, the way he wants, to the degree he wants to involve people and what the person he knows he's working with. Maybe, maybe the way God interacts with different people in terms of like, some are visionaries, some are dreamers, some are like, you know, it's because he knows the kind of person they are. And there's not this cookie cutter way that God relates to and, and, and communicates the word of the Lord to every person. Yes, we can open the scripture and go, ah, yes, we're still auditory learners. We're still um, uh, visual learners. We're still, you know, what's it called? We need to touch stuff. Okay, we're all wired differently to internalize and process information. So even in that sense, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, does this, is this how God always talks to Paul? No. He talks to him in visions. Um, I, Peter actually has a vision. What he thinks is happening as a, is a vision, but it's not. The angel pulls him out of prison. Uh, i trying to think. Paul is told by the Spirit. He's talked to by prophets. He seems to encounter God, like, personally. Like the word of the Lord, kind of Moses and God face-to-face -face kind of ordeal. Um, so, no, this is not the only way God speaks to Paul. Why is there variety? That becomes the question. Why there is such variety with every, with a lot of individuals we see in scripture. It's not like, well, Samuel sees, Moses hears, and Joseph dreams. It's like, well, each of these people is encountering God in varying degrees and varying uh, variety of ways. The Lord says to Paul in a vision, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. I believe he's in Corinth. No one will attack you or harm you. I have many people who are mine in the city. So he reassures Paul, gives him information that he apparently needs to stay confident and bold. Will God always let you know things like that? Where he's like, hey, I'm going to ask you to go and preach the gospel. No one's going to touch you or disagree. You know, does that always happen? <clears throat> no. Again, the amount of details God shares um, is up to God. Okay. So God tells Paul to stay, essentially, hey, you can stay here a little longer. There's a lot of people that are mine. And it gives Paul the fire, the boldness, the reassurance, the confidence to keep doing what he's doing. Otherwise, who knows what, have, what, would, have, what would have happened if God did not give this vision to Paul. Um, which, by the way, if Paul's seeing this in a vision, it's not just hearing and God's going, I'm with you. Paul's visually experiencing something. And it's not just, I'm with you, it's, I am seeing that you are with me and that no one's going to harm me. I don't know what that looked like, but
but the word of the Lord comes in a vision. Acts 26, 19. Paul actually refers, okay, Paul refers to his encounter in Damascus where, you know, he's walking and he's blinded, light shines around, he encounters Jesus. He calls that a heavenly vision to King Agrippa. A heavenly vision. So, you know, was this an actual face-to-face visible encounter with Jesus? A lot of people would say that because that's part of, you know, what it takes to be a capital A apostle. One of the qualifications is you see the resurrected Savior. Now, does it mean you have to see with your eyes? Or did Paul experience a a mind's eye kind of visual, you know, vision of Jesus, you know? 2 Corinthians 12, though, Paul talks about frequent visions. Watch this. I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man. We know it's you, Paul. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, that doesn't seem like a teleportation kind of idea, like where Elijah's like swooped up. This seems, he calls it a vision, okay? Therefore, maybe (coughs) we're getting clarity on what Isaiah or Ezekiel or Micaiah saw. Like it wasn't with their physical eyes, it was a vision in their mind's eye because he says, I was caught up to the third heaven. This sounds like a trance, like what Peter's experiencing or what Cornelius is experiencing. It's this kind of visual in the mind's eye experience of the word of the Lord. But Paul says, I know a guy, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, right? So he's not even entirely sure. That's why I think it's very important to not put these restrictive statements around prophecy and go, well, it will never be like in the body with your physical eyes, or it'll never um, just be in your mind's eye. You'll see something physically. Paul doesn't even know if his vision of the third heaven was in his body, right, or out of his body. If out of the body, that means physical sight is not playing into it at least in terms of these physical eyeballs, right? If in the body, then that does involve the physical eyes. So, just because I don't even know (laughs) if it's a physical experience or a, a visionary experience of the mind doesn't minimize the actual encounter, doesn't make it less likely to be God. Someone would say that, well, if you really had a vision from God, you would know if you were physically or or, you know, in your mind's eye experiencing that vision. Really? Because Paul didn't even know. So you're going to disqualify his vision? You're going to minimize what he saw? Again, he's essentially saying, oh, God knows. I know I was, this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. That's all that matters. Okay? So all the details of visions up to God. The when, the how, the to what degree, the is someone else involved, the interpretation, is it coming immediately? That's all up to God. Is this happening physically? Is this happening in my mind's eye? Up to God. And there are some details, frankly, you and I would love to know that you don't need to. And you can still move forward faithfully. The the vision can play its role, accomplish its purpose, and you don't even need to know the methodology of how it happened, just that it happened and it's God. So the question is not how and whoa, tell me logistically. The question is, is that of God? Once you arrive at a confident, yeah, after discerning and praying and fasting and getting counsel and looking at the scriptures and, you know, paralleling, 
then you can start to make decisions like, what do I do with it? Who do I tell? Who do I involve? What's the next step? Well, Paul said he heard things that can't be told, which man can't even utter. I don't think that's a permissional thing. I think that's a, like a, like a, our ability doesn't allow us to utter what he heard. <clears throat> on behalf of this man, I'll boast, but on my own behalf, I won't. And then he'll go on to keep me from becoming conceited because of the greatness of these revelations, which Paul's like, just being like, just let him know subtly it was me, you know, just very subtle. And then you go to Revelation, guess what John sees to end this whole vision message. Revelation 1.9, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit, which seems to be when most visions will happen unexpectedly. You're not planning around your day going like 3 p.m. a vision from God. 4 p.m. interpretation will come. It just happens. So visions don't seem to be something you control or you're in charge and overseeing and you're, you're sovereignly working the details out. God is over that whole process. I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Write what you see in a book. And then he's going to send it to the churches. From Revelation 1 all the way to chapter 22. Do you know what it is? It's a vision. It's a vision. Okay? So, the whole book of Revelation is a prophetic vision of who? Of Christ. Now, <clears throat> when I said this earlier, does God ever give a vision or a word that won't be fulfilled for a long time? And I said, yes, Daniel chapter 12, verse 7 through 13 is a good example. Sometimes the vision God gives doesn't even come to pass immediately or even in the lifetime of Daniel. Or Habakkuk chapter 2 is another good example, speaking of the prophetic word. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. This is a specific vision Habakkuk sees. This is not instructive for us. This is not God saying, my people, let me tell you, whenever you have a vision... <clears throat> write it on tablets so he may run who reads it for still the vision. This is not for you. This is specifically for Habakkuk's vision. Okay. It might be a good idea sometimes to write down um, a vision you have. But I'm just saying this passage is not a prescriptive instruction to you. It's for Habakkuk. <clears throat> still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will come. It will not delay. Now, I didn't spend a lot of time figuring out if the vision Habakkuk received actually happens in his lifetime or not. But God does reassure him. It might seem slow. It's going to happen. So the question becomes, hey, does God ever give a vision or a, you know, a prophetic word that won't happen for a, a long time? Yes, he does. Because it has a different purpose than what you and I ideally want it to have. Which is, I want to know what to do about it now. I want to know that it's going to happen very soon, you know. And I want to know, and God goes, well, what I do when I speak and why I speak is my decision. So John, the beloved, has a vision of Jesus, which we know of as, as revelation. In the end, he sees a vision of the end days when the kingdom of God conquers, right? But the vision that John receives prophetically... That doesn't come to pass in his life. 
that has even, hasn't even happened. Like the end of Revelation has not happened. And yet this is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some count slowness. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. God gave a promise through the visionary John in Revelation. His son's coming back. The church will be established. The kingdom of God will destroy its enemies, right? That promise is included in the promises Peter's referring to. It might seem slow, okay? God is being patient. So sometimes there is a big gap. And, and again, <clears throat> okay, um, whether it's Daniel 12, Habakkuk 2, 1 Peter, John the Visionary, um, I, I could spend, probably go back in the Old Testament, but I've already spent the first episode of this series proving to you these things. This is just supplementary, okay? This is just supplementary. I'm giving you an extra few verses to reaffirm the fact that yes, when God does give a vision sometimes, or a prophetic word, it doesn't get fulfilled uh, for a while. And there's not always a timetable attached to it. We already talked about that. And sometimes it's not even in the life of you, right? Did David have a vision? Not, I wouldn't say an actual vision from God, but in his mind's eye, did he have an idea of what he wanted to do for the temple? He did. Now, that's different than a vision directly from God, but it was an idea that originated in his heart. Good purpose, good intent, right? Good reason. But he didn't actually do it. His son did. Um, so, here's what I will say. Proverbs 29, 18 is a good place to end. Okay? Now, <coughs> lots of people abuse this verse, so I have to clarify. This is not necessarily in its context, speaking to a prophetic word of the year or um, a word that you get from God, okay? This is referring to the law of God, okay? Which supplies or is synonymous with, at least, prophetic vision. So where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. The people who are casting off restraint are contrasted with the people who keep the law and the Torah of God. So the instruction and the commands of God, those people are blessed when they obey. The people who cast off restraint are, you know, seemingly not keeping the law and there's no prophetic vision, which seems to be supplied by a life of obedience and keeping the law. Now, <clears throat> contextually, yes. The prophetic vision here is referring to at least what, is, what the law supplies, if not synonymous with the law. But prophetic vision from Genesis to Revelation can come in a myriad of ways. Dreams, prophetic words, an actual prophet, visions, the Torah, the scriptures, Jesus himself, the greatest prophet and the word of God embodied. Okay, So prophetic vision can come in a myriad of ways. So I think the general overarching principle that without prophetic vision, people cast off restraint. In other words, they're just wiling out, they're out of control, they have no sense of direction, right? They're not blessed, like those who are following the ways of God in Christ, believing in the Messiah. I think the general wisdom principle is this, that prophetic vision is something that God supplies his people. And should you obey and believe, 
and, and, and do what he says, whether that comes in the form of his instructive, clear, uh, infallible scripture, or whether that comes uh, in the form of a dream or a vision, okay? The point is, God provides prophetic vision, instruction, direction, clarity. Are you looking for it? Are you positioned to receive it? Are you positioned to actually walk in it, okay? So, so yes, the context here, referring to the law. I get that. But the overarching wisdom principle, which Proverbs is that, is that God gives prophetic vision. People can choose to cast it off, do away with it, and not listen, just like Israel didn't listen to the prophets, and they listened to lying dreams and lying visions instead of the true visions of Ezekiel and Isaiah, right? It's always going to be, I think, one of the other wisdom principles is that prophetic vision will always, always be consistent with the truth of God's uh, infallible word. His divinely authoritative, sufficient, infallible word. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible provides guidelines and instruction and um, almost helpful tools for discerning whether indeed you're receiving prophetic vision. Okay? So, that's what I would say as we end. Is believers in general need prophetic vision. Not in a one-dimensional, restrictive, one-method kind of sense. But in a all-encompassing, any method God wants to speak to me through, I want to be positioned to receive and be open and discerning and you know apply it and be obedient and fear Him. And no matter what, let whatever He speaks to me, the Word of God, uh, lead me into a greater fear and love for God, exalt His name and cause me to advance His kingdom more. We'll talk about false prophecies on Wednesday, but one of the ways to gauge and discern through a true vision or a true dream is the overall trajectory and fruit of what that vision would produce in your life if obeyed or, or what that dream is causing you to think about God, your affections and desires toward Him. Because a word from God will always exalt His name and glorify Him. It will never belittle His name and put you more in charge. It will never put you in the driver's seat it will never make you in place of God. It will actually magnify God in your eyes and put you in your rightful place. And so there are a few guidelines. There are a few filters to discern. And I'm going to do my best to bring those before you on Wednesday. That's why I intentionally did not say, here's how you interpret a vision today or with dreams. I'm just going to kind of give an umbrella teaching over prophetic words, dreams, visions, and of course, one of the filters is compare with Scripture. That assumes you know Scripture. If you don't, you're likely to be deceived. You're likely to be um, to miss the voice of God. And you know the sheep hear His voice and recognize His voice because they're familiar with His voice. So we need to become familiar with the main method through which He's spoken, His Son, His His Word, His living, abiding Word, and the Scriptures. So know the Son. And read his word. And then any other way that God is going to speak prophetically to you. And give vision. Whether it's whatever it may be, okay? You'll be more likely to be positioned to receive that, discern through that, and recognize it. And not be led astray. Alright? That's my word for you guys today. Wednesday, you won't want to miss. I promise you, because that will be one of the most important episodes in this whole series. False prophets, false prophecies, false dreams, and how to discern. 
Listen, if you didn't already know, this is Above Reproach Ministry. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com to find out everything about this ministry. We have a bunch of free resources. My wife and I moved from California across the U.S. to Florida a year ago to start this ministry. Here we are. Uh, we have free devotional studies. We have free Bible study classes online. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have free Bible study workshops. We have a free online church you can join on Discord. I have a book I've written. It's called Fruitful. Okay, right here. See it? The Essential Keys to Living the Most Abundant, Satisfying Christian Life This Side of Heaven. Uh, the reason I wrote it was to be a resource for believers, whether mature or not, uh, to give you uh, the gospel, the clear gospel, your position in Christ, the purpose for which you exist, and the process God brings you through, all framed up by the gospel. If you think that would be of value to you, you can buy a copy on Amazon or on my website. You can also donate to this ministry because we are entirely crowdfunded. God funds me and my family and this vision and everything we're doing, all the free resources that we make available to anyone around the world. God funds it through generous believers like you guys. And so if you want to give, you can give uh, at abovereproachministry.com slash donate um, or just go to our website. <clears throat> you can give through debit or credit. You can send a check. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo. Become a monthly patron. Get exclusive benefits. You can buy some church merch. All these different ways to support what God is doing here because uh, I have a wife and two kids. This is my full-time job. And in, in a year, God has done a lot. He really has. So thank you guys for supporting what we're doing. Wednesday, we'll be back with false prophecies, discerning through visions and dreams and bringing more of the application into this thing. Uh, hopefully, this gave you an overview of what visions typically involve and look like and <clears throat> some general principles for recognizing you know, a godly vision. And if you want to give a check someone's asking, you can send it right here. The address is on our website, uh, P.O. Box 338, Green Cove Springs, Florida, 32043. You can make it payable to me, Jason Camacho. <clears throat> and um, I think that's it. I'm excited for Wednesday, guys. Jen, it's good seeing you, sister. Glad you were able to make it. And uh, if you guys notice, got a new camera. Hopefully getting a new soundboard tomorrow. Uh, stepped out in faith, didn't have the money to do it necessarily, but I knew this year if we're trying to rise uh, in every level of this ministry, not just quality, not just presentation, not just content, not just uh, developing relationship and discipleship and, and, and curriculums, but also in like the actual the, the media side of things. So we got a new camera and um, a lot of people gave towards that. So thank you for making this possible. Um, as you can see, it, it makes a difference. It really does. And a lot of people are... Um, I don't know, quality is an obstacle to them. So as, as someone who wants to present excellence and do everything in an excellent way that honors God, all glory to Him, I want to put my best forward. I want to remove every obstacle between someone and hearing what we have to say and hearing the gospel. So if, we, if putting the best quality forward is going to help them be more likely to listen to the truth, and be more likely to take us seriously, I'm willing to do that. So thank you for those of you that gave toward this and, and made this possible. I love you guys, and I'll see you Wednesday. God bless you. Keep moving towards Jesus, and um, visit AboveReproachMinistry.com. All right? Bye, guys.